Ah, good morning. I was supposed to start with a joke, but um, worship absolutely wrecked me, to be honest. Um, it is such a pleasure to be speaking with you this morning. Um, I know it's been a while, but I'm super excited for what the Lord has for us, what he's been speaking. Um, yeah. So as Dave said, we are continuing our series on the Psalms, Psalms for the season. But I'd love to tell you a bit about the backstory of the Psalm that we are going to look at first. Uh, do you remember the story of David and Goliath? I have a PowerPoint. I'm a visual learner, so I have a wee picture here. Hopefully it'll come up. Um, there they are. There's David and Goliath. Um, Goliath was a prominent uh, Philistine soldier from Gath. The Philistines were Israel's enemies. Um, Goliath was nine foot nine. I know people think that I'm tall, right? Uh, I'm in Macrofelt a lot of the time. Uh, people say to me, uh, love, you're a big girl. Would you just pass us that from the top shelf? And you can imagine me picking up this pink girl, really? Uh, but Goliath, is, he, he's a big boy. He's just, uh, yeah, he's nine foot nine. Um, and uh, David was an Israelite whom God told Samuel, the prophet, to anoint. David came under Saul's service because he took a great liking to him. Saul was the king. David has the faith that he can kill Goliath with God's help, and he does. We read this in 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47. Then David said to the Philistine, you come, with me, come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. In the following chapter, chapter 18, David continued to be successful in killing the Philistines. The women of Israel sang a song about David saying, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. But Saul becomes jealous of David's success and he tries to kill him. And so David flees and he's on the run. I know I'm skipping a lot and we don't have time to go through it all. So do go and read it yourself. And if, if you like an action movie, it is absolutely incredible. So David runs to Ahimelech, the priest, but he lies. He tells the priest that Saul gave him a mission and that no one was to know about it. But, when, but then uh, when he's there, he spots a servant of Saul's. He then asks the priest for a spear or a sword. The priest then gives him Goliath's swords. David flees again to Gath, which is Goliath's hometown. I don't know why you would ever go back to the person's hometown who you've just killed with their sword. And we pick up in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 to 15. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath, but the servants of Achish said to him, isn't that David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish says to his servants, look at the man, he is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen mad that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? The servants recognize David. David becomes fearful, so he acts as a madman and so, so the king wouldn't recognize him. A humbling experience for such a successful man. And then David is let go. What happened between David having the faith to kill Goliath and David lying to the priest and continuing to run? Perhaps he thought, I don't need God anymore. Maybe he lost faith in God and he forgets who God is. 
But whilst David was highly successful and was anointed, he still experienced what it is to be human. And so he took the words of the servants to his heart. He felt frightened and in danger. This is the context from which our psalm for this morning is written. It is Psalm 34. If you have a Bible, um, would you turn with me to Psalm 34? If not, the words should appear behind me um, on the screen. This is God's word. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord camps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. Psalm 34 begins with David praising the Lord, glorifying God, and then he invites God's people to glorify the Lord, followed by his personal testimony. He's saying, glorify the Lord with me because this is who God is, and he wants us to learn from his experience. He tells us that he sought the Lord and the Lord answered him and delivered him from all his fears. He is saying that it was God that made him act like a madman, which led to his escape. He sought God and God saved his life. Then his tone changes in verse eight and David invites us to discover the goodness of God that he has experienced himself. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And by taste, he means to experience it for ourselves. God's goodness is not just a theological truth, but a reality to experience. To taste is to prove by experience. If I do, if I do say so myself, uh, I make a great chili. Um, I can tell you how good it is. I can even get my parents to tell you how good it is. But until you taste it, until you experience it for yourself, you'll never know how good it is. Do you like chili, Jamie? No? So this psalm invites us to experience God's goodness for ourselves, And to experience God's goodness, we have to seek him. David says in verse four that he sought the Lord. And in verse 10, he said that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Here's the nature about seeking. Second Chronicles 7, 14 says this. 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. If. Seeking is one, a choice, and it requires something of us. Have you ever been in a situation where you need help? Every week I have a gym session with my coach Sarah. I have a back condition and so Sarah works with me to help manage things. It's mostly me making an absolute idiot out of myself for a, a whole hour. It's a very humbling experience, to say the least. But if I were come into my session and say, you know what, I don't need Sarah today. I'll ask her what she was gonna teach me. I'll just do it myself. I've been doing it for a while now. Sarah, who has a lot of patience, would probably think that I've lost the plot. And then she'd say, okay. And so she would just wait, knowing that there would come a time that I would need her help because she knows me. I'd give it my best shot. And then I'd very quickly realize I can't do it on my own. I actually really need Sarah. I could think, oh, you know what? I know it all. I can do it all. Or I can realize I haven't a clue what I'm doing. I need the coach to help me. And so I'd have to choose to humble myself and ask for help, which would allow her to come and give me help. God gave us free will. It's not in his nature to press himself upon us. He gives us the choice to come to him. And so seeking begins by choosing to admit that we are in need of, what, in, of one greater than ourselves. Once David realizes he needs help, he chooses to humble himself and he seeks God. One commentator writes that such seeking is serious, purposeful searching, not to be confused with wondering. David's saying, I was serious in my pursuit of him. I went after him. Seeking requires something of us. What we seek, we give our attention to. What we seek, we make time and space for in our lives. We wanna be good at CrossFit, we wanna get strong, and so we'll get up at five o'clock in the morning, do a class, we'll take the time to meal prep um, ahead of the week because we're busy and so we make it a priority. I'm not saying don't do those things, absolutely, steward the body we've been given, eat, exercise, do those things. But we need to make time for him, we need to make space for him, to open scripture, to talk to him, to make space for him in our lives, to speak and to move. Seeking asks something of us, it costs us something. That's why Jesus says in Luke 14, 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. But yet, if we seek him, we will find him. Scripture tells us, Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So let me pose a question to you this morning. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? What are you seeking to fill you? What are you seeking in the hope that it will change things? What are you seeking in place of him? I'll go after the job and it'll change everything. I'll go after the relationship and then I'll not feel so lonely anymore. I'll go after the figure and then I'll be content in my own skin. I'm just gonna fill my life with work. That'll keep my heart at peace. Maybe it's chasing a comfortable life. And getting these things, they might help us for a while, but our hearts will get anxious again and afraid again because we're human and we have a heart problem. Don't believe me, look at our world. We live in a culture where you're told, if you want it, go and get it. Just go and get it. 
yet we are riddled with anxiety. We have a heart problem and we think we know what we need to help ourselves. But scripture tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. And here's the thing about being deceived. It's in the definition. You don't even know you're being deceived. And so you think, if I just get the job, if I just get the relationship, if I just keep myself busy, then I'll be content, then I'll be okay. And so we seek what, we, what our hearts tell us that we need, and then we end up mortified that it didn't deliver what we thought it would. Have you ever been in that position? You got the job, but your heart still feels restless. You got the house, but you still feel weary. You got the relationship, but your heart still feels burdened. You're keeping busy, but you're getting more anxious. You're comfortable, yet you're not content. I'm not saying you can't want or go after those things. I'm saying that when we seek those things instead of God, we're gonna be left empty because they will never be enough. You will always be left wanting more and you'll realize that they don't actually fix the problem. In verse 10, David says, the young lions suffer want and hunger. David's saying that even the most powerful will always want more, but those who seek the Lord, they lack no good thing, no good thing. Seeking is a continual act. It's going in pursuit of him. And when you find him, you'll realize that he's waiting for you. That actually he's the one pursuing us first. A couple of months ago, the Holy Spirit showed me some things that I was chasing um, that I wasn't trusting him for. It was really, really hard. Uh, my heart was breaking. It literally brought me to my knees. Um, I remember the Sunday morning and I was over here crying and blessed shirt afterwards. He's like, you okay? And I was like, no. He says, you're back? I was like, no, it's my heart. And he was gentle just as he always is. Um, but it was hard because I was afraid um, because giving up control is really, really difficult. But God met me. Um, he spoke to me. He set me free some, from some things. And so before we move to our next point, I would just love us just to take a minute. Um, if you want, you can close your eyes. The Holy Spirit is here and just ask him. Ask him to show you what you're seeking. I'll just leave it for a minute and then I'll move on. So Holy Spirit, will you just show us? Show us what we're putting our trust in instead of you. Not that we can be condemned, but that you wanna set us free because you're that good.
the first thing that this psalm calls us to is to seek him. And the second thing this psalm is calling us to is to fear him. In verse seven, David says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. And in verse nine, he says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Perhaps when we think of fear, we think to be frightened in a way that is negative or to bring harm or to feel in danger. Anyone else used to be scared of the dark? Um, you'd lie in bed and all of a sudden you'd have the fear that the boogeyman was in your room. I have an older brother and he used to tell me that the boogeyman was in my dressing gown behind my door. And so I would just lie there and all of a sudden I was like, oh, the boogeyman's over there. And I'm, mom! That's still me at 25. Um, but to fear the Lord is to have reverence for God. It's to be held in awe of him, to be astonished at who he is which leads us to behave differently, to depend on him, to be obedient to him, to love him, because you realize who he is. One commentator writes, is behaving in a way that corresponds to one's position as someone brought into association with the Holy One. In Luke 5, Jesus calls his first disciples. They were fishermen. He said to Simon, put your nets out into the deep. And Simon answered, master, we've toiled all night and took nothing but at your words, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. They caught sight of Jesus, of who he is. And their only response was to leave everything, surrender their life, and follow him. I don't know if we really grasp this, perhaps because it is such a familiar passage. But they left their jobs. They left their security, their safety, with no plans in place. Imagine that for yourself. They found themselves in the presence of the Holy One. They were in awe of him. And they couldn't help but be obedient, follow him, and depend on him. David says he will teach us the fear of the Lord. And then he gives us a set of instructions. The command is to do all you can to have everything right with yourself and with your neighbor and with God. It's to follow the law that made you righteous. It's that person whom the eyes of the Lord are on. But we read that in the light of the New Testament, in light of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died the death that we deserved. He was sacrificed for our sins oh. so that we could have right standing with God. And it is faith in Jesus that makes us righteous. Can't even see him crying. Paul writes to the Romans um, and he says this. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, 
For all have, fall, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It was the old covenant. It was the law that made you righteous. But Jesus fulfilled the law. And now those who believe in Jesus are righteous because of the sacrifice of the cross. Living with the fear of the Lord is living in awe of who he is. It's living in awe of the greatest sacrifice. It's living in awe that he sent his son to die for you. Living in awe that he loves you. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's living in awe of him and his love that you're compelled by love to follow him. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 10, 10, Jesus says, the devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come to give life and life to the full. If we follow him, we will live life to its fullest and we won't lack any good thing. And when our feelings and our world and the enemy tell us that we're lacking like they do nearly every single day, it is the truth of who he is and our obedience that will war against it. Um, an interview came out this week with John Piper. He's an American theologian and pastor. It's called Coffee Sipping in the Sanctuary. On Twitter, he posted a quote from Hebrews 12, 28 that says this. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with, with reverence and awe. And with that, he wrote, can we reassess whether Sunday coffee sipping in the sanctuary fits? It blew up. Some people loved it, some people hated it. It sparked feature articles in Fox News in the States and in the Daily Mail here in the UK. In the interview, he says this. Let me try to get right to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is not coffee in the sanctuary. That's only a symptom, and there are lots of other symptoms of what I'm concerned about. The heart of the matter is the absence of an extensional, ongoing, terrifying, shocking, awe-inspiring, trembling, mouth-shutting, comforting, safe, satisfying encounter with the majesty and the mercy of the great I am who I am, whose son said before Abraham, Abraham was I am, and he was killed for it. He says, I'm arguing that many Christians have not tasted this existential, terrifying, awe-inspiring, trembling, moist-shutting, comforting, safe, satisfying encounter with the mercy and the majesty of God. Therefore, when they hear me question the appropriateness of coffee sipping in a certain atmosphere of reverence and awe, they have no experiential categories to grasp what I'm talking about. Inside their experience of God, nothing is more natural than to meet him in worship, coffee mug in hand. It's just so natural. What's Piper all worked up about, they say? So the heart of the matter, it's not the coffee, coffee mug in hand, he says. 
It's the absence of a kind of experience with God that would make a Christian soul long for regular encounters with God and his people that are so profoundly satisfying in the depths of their being with his majesty and his sweetness, in the seriousness of their joy and the weightiness of his glory that a coffee mug would simply feel strangely out of place. When we seek God, we give him space to come close. And when you meet him, you can't help but be changed. You can't help want to obey him. You can't help but love him because you realize who he is. It's not about following a set of rules. It's about realizing the one who's calling you to follow him. After experiencing God, as John Piper describes, the coffee mug feels strangely out of place because you realize who it is you're coming before to worship. Maybe you're thinking, well, Jess, I'm seeking him. I'm living in obedience to him. I love him, but life, life's still hard. David doesn't miss a thing. He says that many are the afflictions of the righteous. It's not follow him and everything will be perfect. He says it's going to be hard. You're going to experience pain. You're going to be afflicted. Jesus says in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus says it's gonna be hard. He even says take heart. Why? Because your heart is going to hurt. You're human. You're going to feel it. You're going to be sorrowful. But he says, I'm coming back. There will be a day when there will be no more pain and no more sorrow. That is the promise. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We live in light of Jesus' death and his resurrection, but we also get to live in the light of Jesus' return. It's the tension that we always talk about living between the now and the not yet. In the meantime, he doesn't just leave us by ourselves. He doesn't just abandon ship and say, all right, okay, see you later. Before Jesus ascends, to, he says to his disciples, very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, it's better if I go, because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't come to you. Jesus breathes on his disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, his empowering presence, the one who is walking with us, our helper, the one who intercedes for us, the one who gives us strength, who speaks to us, who knows our every need, the one whose presence truly comforts because we were made for him. <laughs> 